This is Trent England for Save Our States with another episode of our Six Questions podcast. I'm really excited to be joined by Michael Thielen. He's the executive director of the Republican National Lawyers Association, a group that's been around for a long time advocating for integrity in our elections and trying to bring some balance to the legal world. We're going to talk about all of that. Of course, talk a little bit about the Electoral College today as well. Michael, thank you so much for joining me. Great to be here, Trent, and thank you for being a member. Yeah, yeah, very, very glad to. So first question, uh, we'll start with the basics. You're the executive director of the Republican National Lawyers Association, the RNLA. A lot of people probably don't know what, what that's all about. So just you know, give folks a sense of what's, what's your mission? What is it that you do? Right, uh, there's a lot of uh, people who think all lawyers are Democrats, that's not true. We're kind of the home for lawyers in the Republican party. Uh, we have four basic missions. Uh, one is promoting Republican ideals, uh, and the other ones are related to networking and election integrity, which is the one everybody wants to talk about. But briefly, we're going to have a policy conference on April 1st, where we kind of bring it all together. We talk about the issues of interest to lawyers. We also talk about, we give continuing legal education, which as you know, as a lawyer, you have to do to keep your bar license. And it's more fun to do it in a political environment than, you know, have a boring bankruptcy course that you watch on videotape beforehand. You know, listening to somebody like Senator Cotton is much more exciting than that. And then on the election integrity front, we found that lawyers don't want to get out the vote as much. They don't want to do those kinds of activities, but they're very excited to work on the integrity of our elections, to bring transparency to the process, and they're good at it. Um, I don't care if you do wills and trusts, you can do election law one day a year and help with the polls and such. Well, that's great. So, you know, we, we've already both alluded to it. The legal profession tends to lean to the left, especially in a lot of the big cities on the coast. Michael, what's your advice for young people, law students, you know, maybe just out of law school who are conservative, looking to operate in that world? Uh, what what advice would you have for them? Well, there's there's doors that are open up from being conservative as well. I mean, it you know it's hard to be a, a liberal green deal or working for corporate law, for example. And also, you know, everybody thinks the noble public defender, but we need prosecutors too. Look at all the crime going on. So there are two sides. So there are all kinds of opportunities. While you're in law school, though, unfortunately, law schools do tend to be the left, and you know you probably shouldn't write a creed praising, praising Tom Cotton or talking about Ed Meese as the greatest attorney general ever. Uh, no, you have to play the game while you're in law school, but there are a lot of doors that are open up because quite frankly, we lawyers are on both sides of the issues. So there, if there are liberal lawyers, there need to be conservative lawyers to counter. Switching gears a little bit to the topic that's the closest to my heart, support for the electoral college has obviously tended to become a little bit of a partisan issue what do you think about that? I mean, do you think that the Electoral College really just benefits Republicans and hurts Democrats? Or, you know, what, what's your what's your view on what has, you know, become post-2016 a pretty contentious issue? Yeah, I mean, it, the Democrats are fair weather. So whatever favors them at the moment, they're for that. I mean, and Mark Elias is a great example of that. Um, not exactly an Electoral College, but to give you an example of how he's on both sides of the issue was in Iowa, he sued the state on their changes saying that Iowa's current law was great. At the same time, uh, Representative Miller Weeks won her election by three votes and he was trying to get Congress to overturn that election because Iowa's laws were so unfair. Bringing that into the electoral college, it's the fact that they um, wanna get rid of it now because they've lost some elections to it. If they were winning elections, remember Al Gore in 2000 uh, was advocating for it, 
because he thought he was going to narrowly lose the popular vote, but had a shot to win the electoral college. And that's common for this goes. So that part of it is it's just the latest game of theirs. But on, on another level, it's also a way to take power away from the states. You see HR1 and, and HR4 and all their failed takeovers. They were all about taking power away from the states, whether it's a, you know California on the left or whether it's or Idaho. They want everything in D.C. They want to federalize everything. And that's a larger theme of theirs is too. And we have to respect federalism. And plus, you know, Iowa does not have a lot in common with California. California does not have a lot in common with Maine even. You know, the, the states are very different as you know much better than I do. I'm talking our Six Questions podcast with Michael Thielen. He is the executive director of the RNLA, the Republican National Lawyers Association. Michael, something I've, I've observed traveling around talking to state legislators, I, I think you see this in Congress as well, though I'm not as, as certain about that, is there are fewer attorneys involved in politics today than I think there, there was in the past. You, you know, it used to be a stereotype that you've got lawyers sort of revolving in and out of, of public office. And uh, you know, I know in a lot of state legislatures, there are very few attorneys elected. Some people might think that's a good thing, I'm not sure about that. I'm curious, you know, as someone who works around a lot of politically minded lawyers, uh, I'll, I'll kind of cheat here and ask you a two-part question. I mean, why do you think that's the case if that's really going on? And, and do, you, do you think it's a good thing or, or, or maybe not? Well, I mean, I think there is a certain rebellion against lawyers and for the professional political class. I mean, President Trump, the runner-up, um, close to him at first was Ben Carson in the early polls because people did not want another lawyer politician in 2016. And I think there's a certain carryover that people are fed up with lawyers who make insight. The second part of your question, you definitely need lawyers to write laws. A lot of the problems we run into are laws are unclearly written. So even if the lawyer doesn't isn't the politician, you should have a lawyer drafting it or helping draft it or overseeing it because basically every, let's put it this way, in California, when I was in law school, there's a big initiative process in California. And the night before the election, my law professor said to all of us, are you guys worried about jobs? And we're, you know, we all look around like, what? And they go, yeah, I guess. And he said, well, vote for every initiative because they're all full employment act for lawyers because everything gets sued to death when it's not well done or well drawn. And that's what happens with these legislatures if they don't use lawyers. You need to have your law well done and well drafted, and that's the role for lawyers, whether they're actually the member drafting it or whether the staff are helping put in place with the politicians. So there's a role for lawyers. They don't all have to be elected. Um, you know, citizen legislators can come, and it's good that legislators uh, come from different backgrounds too. Yeah, yeah, I think that's. I'll, I'll just chime in on that a little bit because I, I think. You know, it's a little bit of a catch-22. People don't like lawyers, but then you wind up, they wind up electing people who have to rely on staff attorneys in the legislature. And those staff attorneys may not share the same goals as those legislators, which, you know, I, I feel like I've seen that in Oklahoma a little bit. And it's, it's interesting. People may not quite get what they think they're getting when they elect someone who's, you know, who, who doesn't have a background in drafting legislation, say, you know, whether they're a lawyer or just, you know, have some other experience that way. It's, hey, I mean, we have the Congress can't pass an appropriations anymore. Um, yeah. You know, the Democrats have never been able to. So it's lawyers and a few other kind of staffers that are doing deciding key policy items. No, they're not deciding the, the you know, the 30,000 foot stuff, but the on the ground stuff are being decided by staff. And that's not the way it should work. 
Uh, yeah. So it would, in that sense, it would be better to have lawyers overseeing something more. And that's why RNLA.org exists. <laughs> right, RNLA.org, especially for the lawyers out there. I mean, pe people should go and, and you know, be a, be a part of this because, um, I, I mean, I think, you know, Michael, your, your point is really well taken that, you know, folks may do, you know, wills, trust, and estates, but they still are uniquely positioned to get involved on election day and helping to make things, you know, make sure that things are, are run honestly. You know, people, whether they should or not, and I, I think, you know, in some cases they should, you know, people tend to defer to lawyers when it comes to these legal questions. And so, you know, you, poll watchers need somebody they can contact who has that kind of authority. Right. It's also a mindset, even like you said, if you're wills, trust and lawyers, you understand that you document everything. And some people don't, well, that's not a big deal. No, every part of it's a big deal. And it's also being able to explain a statute to a person. Well, actually, you know, what electioneering is within a polling place, you know, the fact that we had a big issue in Virginia with masking, for example, in the 2021 election. And it wasn't just everybody always goes to fraud right away. It was it, it's hard to tell sometimes where the incompetence ends, and the fraud begins. And I'll explain how lawyers were able to explain to the good election official who just didn't understand that, yes, elections taking place in a school and you see signs up everywhere in the school. Masks are required in November 21. But the law says you don't have to have a mask to vote. So they could explain it to them, cite the statute, cite the election commissioner's ruling. Now, for the bad election officials who may have been Democrats who see, hey, Republican voters come in with gats and flags and no masks and we don't want to wear a mask. Our voters come in with gloves on and two masks. Let's enforce the mask and just say, hey, this is school property. It's not about that. Lawyers can get on the phone to them and say, no, no, no. The law is very clear. The director of elections, do I need the registrar to contact you to tell you what to do? So that's an example. It's not, you know, Bush v. Gore. It's not going to the Supreme Court. But it's explaining either to an election official who's trying to take advantage of an unclear circumstance or, you know, a, a grandmother who goes there to see her son's recital or grandson's recital, um, you know, thinking, hey, it's school property, you have to wear a mask. But either way, lawyers can explain that and lawyers are trained to do that regardless of their practice area. Yeah. Okay. Question number five, Michael, uh, you, we, we talked, you were already kind of getting into this great segue, election integrity. There are a lot of topics out there on election integrity. What do you think are some of the most important as we're working our way toward the, the 2022 midterm elections uh, and then, you know, brand new legislative legislative sessions starting in most of the states next year? What do you what are the things that you hope people are focused on uh, as as we as we come up to a really critical election? Yeah, one of the sad things, and this isn't a Democrat or Republican point, is lack of confidence in election results. I mean, Democrats have not accepted a president being elected as a whole and since 1988 in George H.W. Bush won. They, you know, they think uh, Bush didn't win Florida. They think 2004 Ohio was stolen by the machines and Trump by the Russians in 16. And then, you know, Republicans are very upset about the 2020 election results. So what we really need is transparency in the process. So, and quite frankly, I'd love to have Democrats and Republicans working together, watching the polls. So everybody can feel good about the results. So anything that brings more transparency the process is great for voter confidence. It's great for integrity. And it's also great if the Democrats were intellectually honest and not trying to make a political issue out of it to stop voter suppression. In fact, the matter, if they have somebody in there, they're not going to let somebody suppress the vote, which doesn't happen, which is why they don't do it. It's just a myth. But anyways, transparency in the process, anything that brings us transparency is good. Yeah. No, that's I, I remember when I was working on this in Washington state, talking to election officials and some of them who I, I at least personally was convinced were honest, 
still chafed at that issue of transparency. And that really bothered me that, you know, their attitude was, you know, if you're calling on me to be more transparent, you're accusing me of being unethical, rather than understanding that, you know, it's not just that elections have to be honest, they have to be provably honest, right, verifiably honest, because otherwise, you can have a perfectly honest election system, and people still won't have faith in that system. And, and then it's broken, even even if the numbers at the end of the day are right. So I'm really yeah. glad that's a, a big priority for the RNLA. Yeah, because that leads to voter confidence. And we want people to have confidence in election results. And those election officials shouldn't feel threatened in any way, shape and form. That's why you also want a Democrat and a Republican there. So it's not, you know, the Democrat machine is looking over your shoulder or the Republican lawyer is looking over your shoulder. It's, you know, everybody's trying to help. And think about it. If you if you did a job once every two years for 14 hours in a day, you know, that's that's hard to do. I mean, it's nice to have some help and it's nice to have some people there and they're not, you know, they're just trying to help and they're trying to make sure the process is open and fair. And if you're doing the right thing, if you're not the corrupt official, everything should be fine. Yeah. Okay, Michael. Our, our last question is always, uh, yeah, always I think, the most fun uh, talking here on our Six Questions podcast with Michael Thielen. He is the uh, executive director of the Republican National Lawyers Association. So, Michael, who is your favorite founding father and why? Yeah, like everybody else, I would say George Washington because I was born on his birthday. But since I have this big Republican lawyer sign behind me with RNLA.org on it and everything else, I can't. I should probably go a little different route. So I'm going to go for John Marshall. Um, John Marshall, um, I, I'm not happy with everything in his personal life, but putting that aside, before him, there wasn't a Supreme Court. John Jay, the first chief justice, quit because it was a boring job. Uh, it's hard to believe today as we're in the middle of a you know, confirmation hearing coming up, but it, that was really, nobody knew what to do with the Supreme Court. And John Marshall came in and made the Supreme Court a co-equal branch of governor, government. Uh, he established judicial review, and he really made it what it is today. And without him, we'd have two branches of government or two and a quarter. So I'll pick John Marshall because I got my lawyer hat on today. Um, and, I, you know, he really was a founding father that gets overlooked for his role in establishing the Supreme Court as a co-equal branch. Yeah, and, and mentoring Joseph Story, who became such a great chronicler of the, the early constitutional period. Yeah, I mean, and like I said, it's hard to believe, you know, John Jay was offered the chief justice job a second time. He said, no way. You know, there's nothing I want to do less because it's, there's nothing to do there. And you yeah. know, it's hard to believe today, but that's what it was. Back then, not only did you not have a confirmation fight, you didn't have anybody wanting the dang job. So yeah. it's pretty hard to believe. But Marshall changed that. And I think it's for the better. We need judicial Fair review. Enough. We need to stop unconstitutional things. Yeah. And they had to ride circuit. I, I, former, uh, former boss of mine thought that, you know, if the Supreme Court got too out of hand, we should just, Congress should just pass a statute, force them to go and ride circuit again. And uh, maybe that would, that was a, would be an easier way to establish uh, uh, age limits on the Supreme Court. <laughs> I don't know. I think Clarence Thomas would like to go in his motor home and travel certain parts of the country. So he might enjoy it, but some yeah. of the other ones, maybe not. But um, yeah, it, it'd be fun to watch in that sense. But it's, it's great that we, have a co-equal Supreme Court, even when I'm not always happy with what they do, it's important that it's there. Absolutely. Michael Thielen, Executive Director of the RNLA, thank you so much for being a part of this Six Questions podcast. Thank you, Trent.